Let's open up our Bibles once again to the book of 1 Samuel. And want to draw your attention this evening to uh, chapter 24. Now, remember the, uh, the situation is, is that we've got an illegitimate king, a guy by the name of Saul. David is the legitimate king, and Saul is taking this young guy, David. He's really running him through the ringer and continuing to just put incredible pressure on him. How, how many times have we read thus far of being told that Saul discovered where David was? Saul is not backing off at all. Saul is just driven to kill this young man that he believes is his competition. So this, this trial that David finds himself in, you have to understand this is going on now for a number of years. And so oftentimes, it's not just the trial that gets us. The real killer is the length of the trial. When the pressure is just applied to us and the pressure just won't leave. So whatever kind of intelligence operation King Saul has, it's, good, it's a good one. Because over and over again, he discovers uh, where David is hiding out. Now, you remember, going back to last week, David is continually being driven now further and further into the Judean wilderness. Eventually now, beginning in verse 1, he's going to end up in En Gedi, which is on the west side of the Dead Sea. Now, if you take a satellite image of this area of En Gedi, and you can see that small black circle there on the southwestern edge of the Dead Sea, you begin to zoom in and you get an understanding of just how barren how, how inhospitable this area is. Now, you'll notice that there is this slight green area there. Now, this is En Gedi, and En Gedi has natural springs that are there. Now, again, Daniel, uh, David rather, is traveling with 600 guys. That's going to that's gonna consume a lot of water. It's going to consume uh, a lot of food. And En Gedi would provide kind of an oasis in the middle of this very barren area. So here he is with his 600 men. And now Saul has discovered that David is in En Gedi. Now you remember that Saul was just about ready to pounce on David. And then he received word that, hey, we've got bigger fish to fry. The Philistines have invaded the land and so just when he was ready to swoop in and kill David, he has to break off that expedition and to go after the Philistines. Well, now the Philistines have been dealt with. And so now once again, uh, David is on you know, the radar of Saul and Saul is in hot pursuit of this guy. And we're gonna see in the life of David over and over again, Saul is just ready. He is inches away from killing David. And God just so works the situation out. God is the master of every situation. And David uh, re receives new life. And we're going to see the very same thing happening here. Saul is closing in. Saul is the hunter. But Saul is going to end up being the hunted. Now let's notice in verse 1, it says, Now it happened that when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told unto him, saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took with him now 3,000 chosen men. So 
the special forces guys, all right? And so just the best soldiers that he had from all of Israel. And he went to seek David and his men in the rocks of the wild goats. And so David now is discovered in what was called at that time the rocks of the wild goats. Now, you look at the western edge of the Dead Sea. It is a barrenness area, uh, steep uh, you know, cliffs. And on the sides of these cliffs, you got these dumb goats that are just hanging out on the side of these things. And so David and these 600 guys, they're living in caves. It's a very difficult situation that they find themselves in. And now it's discovered uh, that that Saul is, is closing in. Now, you can look at the circumstances. How many times could David look at the circumstances of his life and say, the promises of God have failed. God gave him a promise. You're gonna be king. But over and over again, the circumstances of his life would indicate that the very opposite is gonna be true. I'm not gonna be king, I'm gonna be dead. That's what's gonna happen to me. And over and over again, as things became so dark for David, God would come in and prove that his promises are to be believed and his promises can be stood upon. And for those of us who have been the followers of Christ for long periods of time, you've got the same testimony and you've seen God work in your life and you've seen those times where you thought, you know, goodbye, cruel world. And yet God would pull a rabbit out of his hat and here, here you are tonight. And over and over again, God proves himself to be faithful and uh, uh, really worthy of our trust. Well, notice then in verse three, this is where it turns, it turns somewhat comical. And so he came, or he saw, into the sheepfolds of the road, which were, uh, and uh, where there was a cave. And Saul went in, uh, to attend to his needs. He's gonna take a dump, all right? And attend uh, to his needs. And uh, David uh, and his men were staying in the recesses uh, of, of the king. Now, notice the definite article. They are in the cave. Now, the reason why I point this out is that when we read Psalm 57, Psalm 57 is introduced when David fled from Saul in the cave. And then when we read Psalm 142, it begins the same way that this is a prayer, a contemplation of David when he was in the cave. Now, all we have to do is read Psalm 57 and Psalm 142, and we can discern what was going on in the headspace of David. We know what David was thinking. You know, it's going through his mind at this very moment. You've got 3,000 guys, right? He's, he's got you five to one five to one, and he's closing in, and now you're backed into a cave. But all of a sudden now, uh, here comes uh, Saul into this cave. Now, what, what was going on in David's mind? In the rest of verse one of 142, I cry out to the Lord with my voice, with my voice to the Lord. I make my supplication. What was it like to know that men that want to kill you Men that want to kill you, they've got you five to one and they are closing in. If you're ever going to be fervent in prayer, you're going to be fervent in prayer at that moment. And so here is David, God, God, I need your help. God, you got to save me. And all here comes King Saul into the very cave where you're at 
and he's going to relieve himself. He's, he's going to sit on a throne of sorts, if you will. And so you know what it's like to be out in the bright sun and you look into a dark place, you can't see anything at all. But if you're in that dark place and you're looking out from the king, we see everything, right? And so here, here comes uh, the, the king. Now, again, his security de detail, they're not going to go into the stall with you, right? And so he's going to be in there. Uh, all, there. There is not a more vulnerable position to find yourself in than with your pants down around your ankle and uh, squatting, right? So here, here, the guys, his men are watching this unfold and notice what their reaction to all of this is. They see it as a gift from God. We can't believe what is unfolding before our eyes here. Notice verse four. Then the men of David, they said unto him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and he secretly cut off the corner of Saul's Robe. So here, their interpretation is that God has delivered your enemy on a silver platter. Swoop in, take it, rejoice in God. So here's, here's David. Now, now again, Saul would have taken off his robe. Saul's not going to the bathroom in his robe. So he's taken his robe off and he set it off to the side. So David is now going not towards Saul, but he's going towards Saul's robe and he's gonna cut off the hem. Now, biblical archeology span review tells us that the hem or the edge of a person's garment in the ancient Near East made a statement about his or her social standing. A king's hem was especially ornate and identified him as being uh, the king. Right, so it's going to be very clear. Everybody is going to know whose hem is in David's, David's hand. There's not going to be any question about it at all. Now, you can imagine what his guys must have thought. I mean, here, here's David. He's pulling out the knife, and he's now walking up towards this defenseless guy. He's no doubt going to slit his throat. But then he turns away from the man, and he turns to the man's robe. And you can see David kind of, you know, cutting on the robe. And the guys were probably thinking, what in the world are you doing? But David understood that God was his protector, David understood that this king had been anointed by God, and if God wanted this king out of the way, then God is going to have to take the king out of the way. David's not going to do it. David feels guilty about what he has done in this situation. Now, it's interesting, Donald Wiseman tells us, by cutting off a piece of Saul's robe, which Saul may have laid aside as he relieved himself, David suggested that he could cut off Saul's reign just as easily. His act constituted a mild rebellion against Saul's authority. So David comes back with this hem in his hand, 
And there's guys like, and you can see them kind of, you know, in, in hushed tone. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why didn't you off the guy, right? And so David has to really hold his guys back. Don't you dare kill him. Don't you dare go up there and, and do him any harm at all. And, uh, and so he, he kept the guys back. Now, uh, Saul gets up, notice he goes out of the cave, and David waits for Saul to get a safe distance away. And David now himself steps out of the king, or out of the cave, and he confronts the king. Now notice in verse 8 that David also arose afterwards, and he went out of the cave, and he called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And then Saul looked behind him, and David stooped with his face to the earth, and he bowed down. Now, he goes on to say to the king, look, what is your problem? Why are you listening to these guys who are telling you that I'm your enemy? And he, of course, holds up the hem of his garment and says, look, I could have killed you, right? This is, this is your ham. And you can see Saul probably looking down and going, how in the world uh, did he do that? And Saul realizes uh, that uh, David has been merciful. Now, what's interesting is that Margaret Munn Rankin, she's a historian, archaeologist, she said that by addressing Saul as his lord in verse 8, his king in verse 8, and his father in verse 11, David expressed respect, submission, and affection. Right? David is making it very clear I am not your enemy. I am not out to steal the throne from you. You're allowing yourself to, to uh, have people feed your paranoia. And I, I am just not a threat to you at all. So notice now that David here is, is really giving Saul the business. And I believe that this is very instructive for us. And, and maybe this is the key lesson that we should walk away from 1 Samuel with. And the lesson is this. Who were these two guys? You're talking about, you're talking about two brothers, right? You're talking about two brothers from the family of the line of Abraham. You're talking about two family members. You're talking about a father-in-law and a son-in-law. So we can see that there's a relationship going on here that all of us can relate to. And we've got family members and we have brothers who are at odds with each other. Now what, what we have to understand in the church today, we are not a corporation, we are not a religious organization, but rather we are a family. We all share the same heavenly father. We, we have Jesus calling himself our brother. We relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So the biblical view of what we are as a church is that we are a local family of the followers of Christ. But what has happened almost from the very beginning of Christianity is that the church has become fragmented. In fact, uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary says, we estimate that Christians are now found in nearly 
45,000 denominations. These ranging in size from millions of members to fewer than 100, right? We are a divided lot. Now, how can we fix the fragmentation? How, look, if the church is to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be unified. And you look at the church, we spend most of our time fighting each other. We spend most of our time arguing with each other. And what we have to do is that we have to get back to basics. Timothy Tennant tells us what the basics is. He says, in the context of global Christianity, we must first and foremost see ourselves as Christians proclaiming the apostolic faith and only secondarily as Reformed Christians, Pentecostal Christians, dispensational Christians, Arminian Christians, we must learn to think of ourselves as members of a massive global Christian movement that is looking more and more like John's vision of Revelation 7, 9, which encompasses people from every nation, tribe, people, and every nation, tribe, people, and language. And here, uh, David is saying to his brother, saying to his father-in-law, I'm not your enemy. And you and I, we've got to understand that we are, if we're gonna survive, if we're gonna be fruitful, if we're gonna be successful, we have to stop making our brothers and sisters in Christ our enemy. And we need to be reconciled with one another. I can tell you the will of God for your life tonight if there are brothers and sisters in Christ that you were once close to, you once had sweet fellowship with, but now brokenness has happened in the relationship, I have a word from God for you tonight, and that is be ye reconciled. That must be the chief goal of our life. Long before we give an offering, long before we go on a mission trip, long before we witness to another person, we are to strive to be reconciled with one another. Now I want you to notice the second thing that David does here. Charles Swindoll points this out. David told Saul the whole unvarnished truth. He told it to the person to whom it mattered most, not to his comrades or to Saul's friends or to the people of Israel, but to Saul himself. He came to terms with the individual with whom there was the battle, and this is what we will not do in the church. I have been doing this for a long time, and I am telling you, over and over again, in every season of ministry, we refuse to confront the person that we have the problem with. Somebody offends us. The first thing that we do is that we gather our allies together and we share with our home group how mean that brother or sister was to us. We share with the prayer chain how uh, unchristian-like uh, their behavior was to us. And we tell everybody and their brother what they have done wrong, but we never speak to the person who has offended us. That's not what David did. 
David went to the person that had offended him and he confronted him. If you're going to have reconciliation, the only way you're going to have it is to go directly to the person that you have the problem with. Now, you go to Matthew 18, and Jesus gives us further instructions on what to do when that private meeting doesn't go that well. But what I want us to see here is that I, I spiritually found myself early on in my Christian experience in different churches. When you have uh, particularly a non-denominational church that is being led by uh, a very uh, controlling uh, kind of charismatic guy or a charismatic family that's in charge of the whole church, one of the things that is oftentimes used to deflect any kind of criticism of the man or criticism of the family, like you, you'll see something and you'll think to yourself, you know, that's, that's not really a good look, right? Should, should one family in the church really be counting the money? Should one person in the church really be calling all of the shots for the church? Is that the kind of look that we want? And you'll bring that to the attention of the leadership of the church, and immediately they will run to what David is talking about here. Well, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And you have probably have heard that if you found yourself in some controlling church situation. Hey, they're God's anointed. Good sakes, don't touch them. Well, look, in the context, touching the Lord's anointed means that you're killing them, all right? Now, I recommend don't kill any pastors. I don't think you should do that this week. It doesn't mean that you can't get pushback. It doesn't mean that you can't criticize it doesn't mean that you can't bring up what they are doing wrong. Look at what David is saying to this guy. I mean, David is giving some very serious pushback to the Lord's anointed. And when he says, I'm not going to touch him, it means I'm not going to slit his throat. So David here is giving serious pushback here. And notice in verse 14, after whom uh, has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog, a flea, right? So David is saying, look, you're a mighty king. You've got mighty military assets. You're able to push back a Philistine invasion. And now what are you doing? You're chasing a dead dog, right? Notice how he's putting himself down. Notice how he's taking the lowly position. I'm a flea. I'm a dead dog. You're a great king. I mean, what in the world uh, are you doing? Now, uh, Saul, uh, this, this really, it, it gets Saul. Notice it's Saul. He begins to weep. Saul is beginning to soften here a little bit. He recognizes his, his foolishness. And then he says a most interesting thing in verse 20. Notice, and now I know, this is Saul speaking, Indeed, that you shall surely be king. I mean, that, I mean, he's having an awakening, right? Uh, no, David, I know that you are going to end up being king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Now, therefore, swear now to me by the Lord 
that you will not cut off my descendants after me. Now, this is very similar. This is what Jonathan had asked him to do, right? A new dynasty gets started. What's the new dynasty do? It kills off all of the old dynasty. That's just, you know, standard operating procedure. And so he's saying now there's going to be a a new dynasty. Instead of a king coming from uh, the tribe of Benjamin, the king is going to come from the line of Judah. And so when you become king, I don't want you to wipe out all of my descendants. I want my my family, my family name to continue to, to live on. Now, therefore, swear unto me that you're not going to cut off my descendants after me, that you will not destroy my name uh, from my father's house. So Saul, his heart is being melted by the love and the patience of God that is shining through the life of another human being. This is, this is what we need to take note of. I know that it's easy to become offended. It's just easy to become angry, isn't it? I'm just ticked off. I'm just upset. And it's so easy to then reach for that broad sword and then swing for the fences with it because you, you feel that you're hurt. You feel that you're anger. I mean, you just, you just don't understand what they said about me. You don't understand the money they owe me. You just don't understand the hurt that they have, they have caused me. And, and now I'm going to really let them have it. Now, the Bible is very clear. The anger of man does not fulfill the will of God. Most of the time when you're ticked off, you're not really walking in the will of God. And when you pick up that sword and you start swinging for the fences, you might be ruining an opportunity for the love and the patience of God to shine through your life to soften a hard-hearted individual. If, If David would have become angry, if David would have taken out his vengeance, this softening of Saul uh, never, never would have happened. And so we have to be careful. Yes, we're angry, and yes, we're upset, but oh God, help me. Help your love and help your patience to shine through me that I might impact this other person uh, for your glory. It would have all been destroyed had David become just consumed with his anger. Well, then notice David, David responds as we close with verse 42. And so David swore, and so he said, hey, you swear to me. And David said, all right, I swear uh, to Saul. And Saul went home. But this is interesting. Notice that David and his men went uh, to the stronghold. Now, why doesn't David go home, right? David's got a house, and David's got a house very close. We assume it was very close to Saul's home, right there in the same community where Saul was at. You remember, David's got a wife, David's got a a young wife waiting for him back home, and she has shown him great love and and great kindness. She saved his life, you remember. She said, hey, you got to get out of here, or my my dad is going to kill you. Now, here's David. He's he's 20-something. He's a young guy. He's got a lot of of testosterone. We're going to see some of that testosterone on display uh, next week in chapter 25. So here he is. He's He's got a young wife. He hasn't been with his young wife in quite a long period of time. And so there's a lot of reasons why he should go home, but he doesn't go home. Now, why doesn't he go home? Well, because he's not an idiot, all right? You see, Saul has cried. Saul has said some of the right words, 
But repentance is never measured by emotion or by words. Repentance is not measured by emotion. Repentance is measured by action. Now, we are told that godly sorrow, godly sorrow is not repentance, but godly sorrow will lead to repentance. Now, we've got, we've got sorrow on display. You, you've hurt me. You've, you've harmed me in some way, and now you've, you've cried about it. Well, that, that only tells me that you're upset, right? It doesn't tell me that you're willing to do the hard work and take the proper actions that you, you need to take. And so Saul is crying. Saul is saying the right words. But David's not going to be so foolish as to trust a man who has now tried to kill him on multiple occasions, right? If some guy has thrown a spear at you on numerous occasions wanting to pin you to the wall, and now he's got 3,000 special forces guys out hunting for you, this is not a guy that you're going to quickly trust, right? Yes, he's crying, and yes, he's upset. Alan Redpath, he says it this way, and he says it so well. We sometimes see people streaming down the aisle in an evangelistic meeting with tear-stained faces. But what difference does emotion make if it does not lead to obedience? What profit is it that a heart has been stirred unless from that moment the man lives in submission to the will of God? Indeed, it doesn't make a difference. For if a man is emotionally upset, as Saul was, and awakens to his condition, but only weeps about it and still doesn't obey God, his second state is a thousand times worse than the first. Emotion that doesn't lead to action only leads deeper into sin and rebellion. Eternity is decided by a series of choices which each of us makes in the course of life. And so look, he's got his words, he's got his tears, all right? I'm just gonna sit back and I'm just gonna watch what his actions are and I'm gonna see if his actions line up with his emotion and line up with his words. And what we are gonna see with King Saul is that this guy, this guy is gonna go off the rails even more. So this, this emotional uh, outburst that he has, and I'm sure he felt bad there for a moment. Uh, there was some clarity that came to his mind, but the paranoia, uh, the narcissistic behavior, uh, the selfishness, all of this is gonna come flooding right back into this guy, and this guy is gonna be worse off than he was before. And so what we have to pray for is that our hearts would be changed, the hearts of our enemies would be changed, the hearts of those that God wants us to be reconciled, that their hearts would be changed. It's great that they feel bad by what they've done. It's great that they're saying the right words, but what we ultimately want to see is that for the heart to follow hard after the will of God uh, for their life. And that certainly 
is what we need to pray for concerning ourselves. And so I think that as we uh, close with prayer tonight, one of the things that we need to be praying about is that uh, do, we have, do we have former friends? Do we have former brothers and sisters in Christ? We used to have sweet fellowship with one another, but now uh, there's a broken relationship that is there. The will of God the will of God is for us to be reconciled. And it takes a lot of grace, it takes a lot of mercy for that reconciliation to take place. And so we need to pray, oh God, help my heart, help me to do the right thing that I'm doing my part concerning reconciliation in the body of Christ. Lord, I would pray that as we now leave that we would just meditate on the life of David and Lord what your Holy Spirit has recorded about his life for us that we would give serious thought about unity we would give serious thought of what reconciliation looks like and Father, in some of these family situations that we have, some of these church situations, we, we have been hurt and, and we're just upset and there's just so much of forgiveness. It just doesn't seem to be that fair that they can hurt us and now they can just kind of, you know, gloss over it. And Lord, I pray that you would work in each of our hearts just the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would take a moment to think about what he has forgiven concerning us and how we have been the recipients of his mercy. So Lord, would you help us to navigate some of these tough relationships that we have in our families and in our churches? Lord, your son told us that the world will know we are Christians by our love that the world would know that the Father has sent the Son into the world when we are unified. Oh God, help your people to deal with this issue of fragmentation. Help us to seek peace. Give us the strength to do so, Lord, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.